The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. 1 Peter 1, 10-12 Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. You got your Bibles, you could open it up to 1 Peter. <clears throat> For those of you just joining us, we're four weeks into this new teaching uh, on the book of First Peter. And if you'd like to get caught up with us, you can find all of our past sermons on our website and on our podcast. Um, it always kind of blows me away to find out how many people from different places are listening to our podcast. Um, we put a lot of time into our sermons because we believe preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible is the best way to come to a full and complete understanding of God's self-revelation in his word. And so for the next six months or so, we are going to be studying Peter's first letter to the Christians who were living in the first century Greco-Roman world, what is now Turkey. Um, And I kind of, I study a lot. I read a lot. It's one of the ways once I never read a book in my life until I was converted about the age of 17 or 18. And then all of a sudden I got this voracious appetite for reading. And so I fell into you know, like normal people do, you know, a thousand word, you know, uh, textbook on the history of Christian mission this week, and I couldn't put it down. And I got completely nerded out, I completely nerded out on the history of the Greco-Roman world, because I wanted to know for us, what did it feel like to live in this time where first, these letters, this first Peter is writing to these Christians, what did it feel like to be in that culture? Because by default, what we do, and this is called, I'm just going to, big word, kind of, it's called eisegesis. What the heck is eisegesis? Well, exegesis is taking what's in the text and pulling out the truth to understand what's there. Eisegesis is bringing our understanding, our cultural understanding, and putting it in the text, okay? And so we read this Bible like it's written to us. It wasn't written to us. It was written to first century Christians living in, throughout Asia Minor, okay? So we have to underst- get in the text and understand what does it mean to live in that culture, And one of the things we find out is the Greco-Roman world predominantly was made up of what we call Gentiles, what the Bible calls Gentiles. Now, I know we don't use that word anymore, and you're tempted to kind of click off and just, you know, zone out. Um, But a Gentile, it was anyone or is anyone who is not Jewish, okay? Gentile is the predominant word in the New Testament to translate the Greek word ethnos, okay? nation, ethnicity. So Peter is writing to people who are predominantly a different ethnicity than the Jews. And one of the things you learn as you study ethnicity and race is that each ethnicity and each nation has their own worldview. Okay. It's what is a worldview? It's your way of making sense of the world. It's the story you believe about all things that you find yourself in, how you make sense of all things in the world. 
And that's important to understand as we're reading and interpreting this letter. See, when this letter was written, the Jewish people had the Old Testament. They had the story of the creation of man and the creation of all things that God did this. They had the story of the fall of man. They had the story of then God's plan and God's promise of redemption. I'm going to fix this. God said he was going to raise up a man to reverse the curse and make everything right again. See, the Old Testament shows us Yahweh, the God who chooses Abraham and tells him he's going to be the father of many nations, even though he is powerless to produce children on his own. God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation that is going to be the nation of Israel. We know that if we follow it out. But he says this, I'll make you into a great nation and through you, I will bless all peoples and all nations of the world. And as you read the Old Testament, you see this God is omnipotent. He's in control of all things. He's working out this plan to perfection. You also see that surprisingly, in one sense, he's compassionate and merciful. He's long-suffering, never giving up on his people, even though they rebel from him and seek to live their lives on their own terms. And so God chooses and pursues men and women over and over and over and the, 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 the narrative of the Old Testament is God chooses, God pursues, God saves, and men run, and men fail, and men rebel, and men turn away from him. Men want someone else to, they want to line up under someone else's banner other than Yahweh's, other than God himself. So they organize themselves, they beg for kings, right? And so God gives them kings, and God gives them prophets, and God gives them priests, but they still refuse to listen to God. They still refuse to follow God, to love God, to worship God with their whole hearts. But all through the Old Testament, there's this thread of hope. There's this thread. You could call it a thread of a messianic hope. What is the messianic hope? A Messiah is the one who's going to come and make all things right. One day, Listen, when you read the Old Testament, here's the thing. One day, there will come a man who will make everything right. One day, a man will conquer sin. One day, a man will lead us to final victory. One day, a man will fix everything that's broken in our world. One day, a man will unite all people, and listen to this, and usher in an eternal kingdom that will have no end. One day, a man will make everything right and bring us back into a perfect relationship with Yahweh. So throughout all the brokenness, all the anxiety, all the despair of the Old Testament, you still have this thread of hope that one day someone is going to fix it. And so listen, Jewish people took great pride in this. One, it was prophesied that they were going to come from their lineage, from their ethnicity. It was going to be a Jew that God raised up to do this great thing. Now the Jews, they had, think about what this does to you when you have this kind of story. They had history with God. They had a promise from him. They had the patriarchs, they had the kings, they had the prophets, they had this history and that history gives you an identity. 
It roots you in the past. And this history also promised them a great future, a future where all suffering would, and all sin would be made right. Having a history like this is a very powerful force upon one's life and culture. What you believe about your past and what you believe about the future will shape how you live in the present. To see yourself as a character in a great and enchanted story like the Old Testament, is, is, it gives one a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose that makes your life more buoyant than those without such a story. You can overcome things that others can't. It gives one hope no matter what the circumstance. Think about it. Jewish people can always say, I know it's bad, but it was also bad in Egyptian slavery, when God heard our prayers, redeemed us and rescued us with his strong right hand. It was also bad in Assyrian and Babylonian exiles, but God restored us and God rescued us and, and God redeemed us. God has never forgotten his people. God has never forgotten his covenant. People have tried to wipe us off the planet, but they can't do it because God is for us and God has promised he's gonna keep us. No matter how dark it gets, God will raise up, God will step up, and his enemies will be scattered. See, the Messiah will come. They had this thread. It was, it was woven deep into their core. Ever since a little child, they were told these stories of the Old Testament. And so they became a people that were shaped by hope. No matter what came against them, even when they sinned, they came back and they had this thread of hope. Messiah will come. And when he does, the prophet Isaiah told them in chapter two, people, listen, people will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Do you hear what the prophets are saying right there? Prophet Isaiah, he's saying there's coming a day when all your weapons will be turned into agricultural instruments, when war will be no more when we won't be arguing over if this is a just war or not, or who should we kill and who should we not. There's going to come a day when peace will reign. And when will peace reign? When Messiah comes. But here's the thing. Peter's writing to Gentiles. The Gentiles had no such story. The people to whom Peter is writing were living in a Greco-Roman region they were pagan. They were polytheistic. They were very spiritual. Their culture was pluralistic in the sense that it was heavily influenced by Greek and Roman spiritualities and religions. In fact, this is interesting. As I read this week, almost every part of the Greco-Roman world was religious or spiritual. Everything was spiritual. There were shrines and temples all over to all different kinds of gods and goddesses. They, of course, worshiped the Greek gods that you know about, that most of us know about, you know, the Parthenon and such. But they also were required because they were conquered by Rome, right? And so Rome, you know, we know about the Roman roads and we know about the government of Rome and we know about the Pax Romana, or maybe we do, that Rome brought this peace by conquering its enemies and there, and there was this time of great peace in the region. 
right? But Rome also brought its own spiritualities. And what was its own spirituality? Mainly the worship of leadership, the worship of the kings, the worship of Caesar. And so you would go to into a temple and you could sacrifice to Aphrodite and you could sacrifice to Zeus. And then you also had to go over here and just pay a little homage to Caesar and write a, and, and just burn a little incense to Caesar. Worship Caesar as Lord. See, what it felt like to live in the Greco-Roman world was basically a religious smorgasbord. They had no great story that rooted them in history and gave them hope for the future. All their stories, you read the stories of the Greek gods, they're not, they're not very, they are exciting. They're not very encouraging, right? Not very encouraging. Capricious, angry gods. You just have to placate them to avoid their wrath. See, their relationship with the gods was all done in fear. The gods were powerful and capricious, and if you didn't obey them, they would curse you. One of the ways I would describe religion in the Greco-Roman world was to say that it was a follow your instincts and do whatever feels good religion. Pray, burn incense, give offerings, go to the temples, do whatever it is that the priests say to do in order to get a safer, more prosperous life. And if you don't, the gods will punish you. They will curse your wife with infertility, cause droughts to destroy your crops and your bodies to get diseases. And th think about it. The infant mortality rate was astronomical back then. There was fear. It was mainly an agricultural society. So if your crops went bad, you starved. The fear was great. And so they had this inner compulsion, right? This inner compulsion. I always say it like this, to dance for your dinner, right? To do something to get the God's attention so they would get the favor of the gods. And what am I saying? That means their story was dominated by their behavior. How good they could perform depended on how, on their, their relationship with God depended upon how good they could perform. And this shaped them. In great ways. Now, honestly, I would equate this with the popular spirituality of our day and age. There's always a new spirituality that's coming in and out of vogue. Get in touch with the universe. Learn the secret to harnessing the power of positive words and tapping into the law of attraction to get what you want. All of this is just pagan Greco-Roman spirituality repackaged into the new latest bestseller. Many of us watched Conor McGregor get beat in 10 rounds last night. Conor McGregor is a huge proponent towards this secret, towards this power of attraction. I just thought of myself in Madison Square Garden and then I made it happen. I harnessed the power of the universe and then the universe goes to work on my behalf. Pagan, demonic spirituality. And here's the thing. And I, I wrote this before it happened last night, so I'm just thankful. <laughs> and when suffering hits you, and it will, when you get knocked out by life, all there is to blame, if you're a pagan spirituality, all there is to blame, guess who's to blame? You. I must not have danced hard enough. I must not have worked hard enough. I must not have done the right thing, burnt the right thing, sacrificed the right thing. I'm to blame. And so what does that lead to? More anxiety, 
more frustration. I think I must have done something to deserve this. The gods are angry at me. I must have somehow attracted this suffering to myself. And so pagan religion doesn't help us when we're suffering. And these Gentiles here, now I want you to hear what's going on. These Gentiles living in this milieu, right? This cultural milieu, this religious smorgasbord, all these different options for religion. All these different options. And why, why choose one? Why choose one? I can go to this temple. I can go to that temple. I can pay a little homage to Caesar. Why can't I just do all, all of it? Well, when the gospel gets preached to them, we don't know how the gospel came to them. If it was Peter himself who came, if it was Paul who came, if it was some people that happened when Acts, when the dispersion kind of happened in Acts and people went here, we don't know how the gospel came to them. But we know the gospel came and they preached through the power of the spirit and they heard the gospel and they believed the good news of Jesus, the son of God who lived a perfect life in their place, who appeased all, the only God, sorry, the only God on behalf of them. And they hear of Jesus dying the substitutionary death to appease the wrath of God that's towards them because of their sins against him. And they believe it. And Peter says they're born again by the Holy Spirit. That means they have been spiritually recreated from the inside out. They are now new people. They now have a new ethnos. This is great news to them. That means they're no longer enemies of God. They're no longer outsiders. They're now his children. They no longer need to fear his wrath or fear his judgment. They're recipients of his love. They're his children. Their salvation is secure, Peter told them. But Pastor Peter here is about to do something I find rather shocking, if you know the culture that's going on here. He's about to cross racial and ethnic boundary lines. He's about to give these new Gentile believers a history lesson and a theology lesson. I would just say a big old gospel lesson. And he's doing it, listen, primarily, I believe, we'll see if I'm right as we get in the text, to restory them, to help them see that they are now a part of the greatest story that has ever been told. The story that God is writing within, within the whole universe. The story of God. Listen. He wants them to know, yes, you just believed. Yes, you just came to faith. But listen, you're not a part of something new. Christianity is not some new cult that they can join right alongside all the other gods and all the other goddesses. This isn't one more option on the religious buffet. No, what has happened to you being born again has grafted you into an ancient people. You have been born again into the Old Testament story. Your names have been written into the story of God and that gives you a history and that also gives you a future. And that's also going to shape how you live in the present if you understand it correctly. It gives you a part to play in a story that Peter's gonna go on and say that I just can't get my mind around this morning, that when the angels read the chapter, when the angels look into it, they go, whoa. It says the angels long to look into it. The angels are free to go to the throne of God. The angels are without sin. The angels are perfect. The angels have never failed. The angels have always felt God's perfect love. But yet 
when they look in at the gospel story, they long to look into it. That boom blows my mind. And I'm going to get there. Now, why is all this important? That's a lot of backstory. Well, I already told you that Gentiles didn't have a shared history. And you know what? Many of us in this room, we don't have a shared history. Our ethnos has shaped the way we view the world. If you're white, you're, you've been a dominant culture. You're, if you've lived in this country, you've been the dominant culture your entire life. And you think like a white person. I'm sorry if that's a revelation to you. Okay? If you've been middle class, you think like a middle class person, more than likely, unless you've had experiences that pull you out of that, that educate you out of that, that bring you out of that, right? If you come from another country, that country, wherever it was, it's got its own stories, its own narratives, and it shapes the way you think about the world, the way you receive information. It's got a dominant story that you find yourself in somehow. Every culture does. And listen, Every culture has good things about it that need to be redeemed and brought in line. And every culture has bad things about it that must be redeemed and brought into line. And some, some of our cultural things need to be rejected as Christians, because we have a new ethnos. We've been brought into a new story. We need to reject some things from our culture. We need to reject something, condemn some things from our history. Now, why is that so important? It's important because as human beings, you can't help but be shaped by stories. We're, we say around here, we're story-formed people. We make sense of our world through stories. Who am I? Now listen, when you ask who am I, your parents probably tell you a story, right? Tell you a story about being brought, born in this family. We're, we're shaped by story. I remember one time in, in uh, high school, uh, most of my relatives are from Alabama, and uh, I can't wait. Next week, you'll hear Roll Tide next week, <clears throat> just so you know. It's coming. Yeah, I know you've been missing it. Uh, next, listen to this. So I was in high school, and we had to do a report, you know, on your ancestries, ancestors, right? They wanted us to understand our story, where we come from, our history. And I remember going to my great-grandmother at the time, and I was trying to trace out my history, and, and I said, Grandma, I said, Granny, I said, where, are we, where, where did we come from? I wanted to know our history. And she said, oh, hon, we always been here. <laughs> I said, uh, it's not, that's not too helpful, Grandma. Right? That wasn't too helpful. Now listen, what, what are we, I, I'm, I was wanting to know, how did I get here? How did I become who I am? How did I get to Iowa? How did I, we get to Alabama? Where did we come from? Where did my na last name come from? All of these things are story-formed things. Why is the world the way that it is? What am I for? As a human being, what am I for? What, is it, what am I here on earth for? We make sense of these questions through stories. And, and especially if you've gone through suffering or if you're going through suffering, and listen to me, when you go through suffering, you need a story. The story you believe about the world shapes the way you suffer. Is it even worth it? Why am I suffering? What's the point? You've seen the movie Silence or read the book Silence by Shuzaku Endo, phenomenal book just directed by Martin Scorsese, deeply moving movie about Christian missionaries to Japan who suffered and they had to wrestle with this idea of suffering and this wrestle with this understanding of the narrative they saw in the world. Why are we going through this? How can we get through this? I really encourage you to watch that movie. 
My son and I sat down and watched it yesterday. I'm really moved by it. See, the story you believe you are a part of will shape how you suffer. Now listen, philosophers call this idea the meta-narrative. It's an overarching story or storyline that gives context, meaning, and purpose to all our life. And uh, most of you know I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of Lord of the Rings. And there's this scene, there's this moment in Lord of the Rings where Frodo and Sam, they discover for the first time, not only have they loved stories, but now they've discovered that they're actually a part of a story. And in a moment when things are looking especially bleak and they look ahead and they know, they know death awaits us out there. This is an inconquerable enemy. We can't do this on our own. They look out of there trying to decide, should we go forward or should we just give up and hide? And in this moment, Frodo's friend, Samwise Gamgee says this. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you don't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now, folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. Frodo, what, what are we holding on to, Sam? That there's some good in the world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. I, I think this is one of the greatest moments in the story when Sam and Frodo realize not only are they a part of a greater story, but they've been shaped by all the stories that they believed about life. The stories of, of the, the little guy who becomes the hero, the story of good conquering evil. They've been shaped by these stories and now they're living it and they have an opportunity to live out the, the character, live out the person that they are in the story. It's a great and powerful moment. They have a part to play in this huge meta narrative, this huge story that's going on. But the reality is, if we do not see ourselves as a part in a great and grand story, a meta-narrative that shapes all of our life, listen, we will inevitably be shaped by something smaller. Some story that is less. Our lives, this is what, in his book, God Story, Stephen Shoemaker says this, our lives must find their place in some greater story or they will find their place in some lesser story. A couple weeks ago, I was reading a story in USA Today of a couple. I'm not going to say their name, but they're 53 and 50 years old. And they had, they jumped off a building in New York City on Madison Avenue committing suicide. They left behind a 19-year-old and a 20-year-old. They committed suicide together. And they left behind a suicide note that said this, we had a wonderful life. And they go on to explain in the, in the letter that they were in a financial spiral and could no longer live 
with that reality. Now, I want you to see the narrative behind this tragic act. Death is better than being at the bottom of a financial spiral. Death is better than being broke. What could, what story could make a person think that? How could you leave behind two kids, 19 and 20 years old, because of a financial spiral? The guy was a doctor of chiropractic. He was educated. But when financial suffering hit his life, him and his wife both, they couldn't handle it. What narrative, what way of viewing the world would shape a person and show them the, the way out of this situation is jumping off a building? I'll tell you what. The American dream of school, college, career, marriage, kids, and consumerism. It's a hopeless way to live. I'm thankful for the freedoms we have in our country. I'm thankful for being American. It, that's a different narrative than the Bible gives us. Consumerism, I define my life. I define my identity by what I can get, what I can consume, the numbers in my bank account, the kind of car I drive, the kind of property I own, the house that I live in, the neighborhood I live in. What's the desire of consumerism? The next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And when that gets shut off, financial spiral, it blocks me from what I want. It blocks me from the good life of consuming more and more and more. And so I'm in despair. That is a narrative that will shape your life in a very unhealthy way. Listen, we were not created to live for money. We were not created to live for money. Living for money is a story, listen to me, that lacks the redemptive turn in the story of God. It lacks redemption. You either get money, and when you do, you become proud of your accomplishments, and you get judgmental to, towards those who don't have money. You separate those from, that don't have money like you do, or oftentimes, you get money, and in the words of Jim Carrey, he said this. Jim Carrey said this. I hope everyone gets everything they want in life and realize that's not what they're looking for. It won't make them happy. See, that's the only two ends. With, if money is your worldview, getting more and more, it either ends in pride or it ends in despair. Right? You either get it, become proud, or you get it and you get bored by it, or you never get it. You feel, I'm going to be blocked off from this. I'm never going to be wealthy. I'm never going to get to have that car or drive that, or have that freedom just to go out and buy whatever I want to buy. You get blocked from it. And it's worse than death. But Peter here, Peter is saying, there's a story that's bigger and better than all the cultural narratives we want to believe, all the other stories in our world. The story of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen to me, is the most beautiful, the most powerful, 
the most life-shaping, meaning-making, endurance-creating story ever told. So much so that when angels look into it, when angels give it a gander, they're captivated by it. I have this, I have this vision in my head. The angels, right? Around the throne of God, worshiping God, and just captured by his glory. They long to look into this story. They're like, hold, hold on. Let me go and look at this. Whoa! Why? Angels have never experienced redemption. You know that, right? When angels sinned, the angels that sinned went straight, were judged, no redemption, no chance at redemption. Angels have never sins, sinned. So therefore, angels have never felt the redemptive love of God. The love of God that loves dead sinners into existence. It's a better love than an angel has ever experienced who's never sinned. You don't get that. I don't get that. But I want to look at it and go, whoa, I can't feel that. How could it be? How could I feel more loved by sinning and being redeemed than, than by never sinning ever? It blows my mind. They, angels long to look into it and read it again and again and again. Now, can I just say this? If angels are captivated by this story, I think it's probably hard to capture an angel's imagination. You know, I doubt they're too impressed with the things that we do on a day-to-day basis, right? As they're in the glory of God, as they're in heaven, as they're ministering and fighting spiritual battles we don't see. I, I think it would probably be pretty hard, like at a party, to impress an angel. Okay. Listen, if angels are captivated by the story of God and the story of redemption and the grace, and I know I haven't got to my text this morning. I'm going to get there. I'm kind of there right now. If they're captivated by it, what do you think our response should be? Here's my thing. Maybe we've been missing something. Now, This is meant to be an encouragement, and for many of us it will be, but it's also a two-edged sword. Peter's going to show us that all believers are part of the story of God, but he's also going to show us that our infatuation, our devotion, our greatest love in life will, hear me, I'm not saying should be, will be Jesus. Our infatuation will be Jesus, not should be. And if it's not, then we do not understand the story. We do not understand our salvation. We do not understand the gospel. Now let's get to our text this morning. And here's the deal. Verses 3 through 12, we haven't really talked about this. Verses 3 through 12 are one big sentence. Corey kind of mentioned it a little bit last week. There's a whole lot of commas, right? That we... There's no periods. There's no sentences. We break it apart so we can kind of understand it, get our mind around it. But all of this is one big old sandwich, okay? And so everything I've talked about is kind of wrapped up in this thing. So when we look in our text right away, and it says this, verse 10, concerning this salvation. That's everything we've preached the last three weeks. Elect exiles, right? The work of the Spirit the work of Jesus, the electing power of the Father, all of this that God has done, he's wrapping it up in this, concerning this salvation. That's everything that God has done to rescue humans from the negative consequences of sin and to give us 
the blessings and the benefits that Jesus has earned for us. What are those blessings? Sonship, right? Adoption. We're empowered by the Spirit. We're ca- he caused us to be born again. We're giving a new alien righteousness that now we don't stand in our own righteousness. We're standing in the righteousness of Jesus. So when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus. We're given in a heavenly inheritance that's being kept there for us and he's keeping us also for the inheritance. He's guarding us and he's getting us to our inheritance. Man, I want to preach everything again. Every trial, every temptation, every form of suffering, God is guarding us and going to get us to our inheritance. When Peter says this salvation, he's ta- that's what he's talking about. That big thing, right? And I feel like so many times when we read terms like this salvation, oh, you mean when I asked Jesus into my heart? Oh yeah, yeah Jesus died on the cross. We speak it so flippantly. It lacks any cultural pull, any, any you know, narrative that, that makes us go, whoa, makes us go, yes, makes us, you know, weep for joy and, and worship our great God. And there's something wrong with it. Let's get into our text. I want to show you something. We're going to look at, how, we're going to look at the two things, three things. We're going to look at the prophets, how they saw the story of God, their reaction to the story of God. We're going to look at the angels. We kind of already have. And we're going to look at us or the, the believers here as we read this. Let's keep going. Concerning this salvation, look, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Okay, who are the prophets? The prophets... They lived hundreds of years. Please hear me. The hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And it says here in our text, what did they do? They searched and inquired carefully for the Messiah. Searched and inquired carefully. These men spent their lives fighting to see Jesus. Fighting, reading the Old Testament, right? Going over the narrative, going over the plan of redemption. And they're looking on, on their culture and they're saying, is he here yet? Is, is this the time? Is that the man? Has God raised up kings and God raised up prophets and God raised up priests and God raised up all these people? Is this the guy? Is this the guy? No, he's not the guy. Keep preaching, keep believing, keep trusting. They searched and inquired carefully. They were fighting the pull of other stories. Just give up and define yourself by something else. They resisted idolatries. They opposed, listen to me, they opposed power and spoke against kings. When kings aligned with another God, when kings did something that that was out of kilter with the word of God, the prophet stood up in the place. Even though God put the king in place and in power, the prophet spoke truth to him and said, you're off, you're not serving God, and if you don't come back, judgment will come. You're not the Messiah. Messiah's still coming. And when Messiah comes, he's gonna judge everything and make everything crooked straight. Prophets stayed focused looking for Jesus. No matter what, anybody tries to pull them off one way or the other, they stayed focused looking looking for Jesus. They resisted the siren call of wealth. They were singular in their focus. Their whole life was spent trying to see Jesus, 
trying to find the Messiah, trying to know when and who he was going to be and trying to get others to look for him and to hope for him and to wait for him and to endure suffering with them, with the hope on Jesus coming. And it's interesting. This drives me so much, so crazy. We got, we've, in our culture somehow, in the church, there's this idea that Christians don't read the Old Testament anymore. Do you look, look what this says right here. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, look, about the grace that was to be yours. He's saying those prophets were, were looking forward to something that you've had delivered to you. It's in your heart, it's in your hands, and the prophets were pointing forward at it. Now keep reading. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person that was to be yours, Jesus, searched and inquired carefully, well, I'm sorry, or time the spirit, look at this, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he pre predicted the, the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. The spirit of Christ in the prophets. The Holy Spirit inspiring the prophets to point forward to Jesus, to look for Jesus, the things that we've experienced now, he was pointing for, why would we not study the Old Testament? Who inspired it? The spirit of Jesus. Why do we study the books of the Old Testament? Because the spirit of Jesus inspired it. And it's so fascinating to go back and go, oh my goodness, that's not just a cool Bible story. That, that's about Jesus. He, he's pointing forward to Jesus. The whole Bible Old Testament, New Testament, it's about Jesus. Inspired by the spirit of Jesus through men. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I know this is, you guys read them every day, right? First thing, I'm going to the prophets today. We'll find Jesus. But do you know what the, old, the New Testament says about them? Flip your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. I'm going to read it. And what more shall I say? The author says, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Look at this. Who through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I love this turn. What a turn. Some were tortured. Hold on. If we're picking parts to play, I want the first half of that sentence. Right? Some were tortured. Refusing to accept release will not deny the faith. 
will not back down so that they might rise again to a better life, shaped by a story. They know their history. They know their future gives them power to suffer in the present. Others suffered mocking. Oh, they're made fun of and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. This is how the world treated the prophets who were filled with the spirit of Christ. This is how the religious world treated the prophets who were filled with the spirit of Christ, maligned, mistreated, beaten. And you know what the author of Hebrews says about that? He says this, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Listen to me. The prophets longed to look into the gospel of Jesus. These men spent their whole lives infatuated by the hope of the Messiah, driven and motivated. And Peter says they did that because they had the spirit of Christ in them. This, listen here, here's the connecting point. The same spirit that has been given to the believers in 1 Peter and the same spirit that is given to everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. The spirit caused the prophets to be infatuated with Jesus looking forward, having never seen him. The spirit causes believers to be infatuated with Jesus, having never seen him, looking back into the scriptures, hearing the gospel. But we already saw it's not just the prophets who are captivated by Jesus. The angels are too. What the prophets hoped for, the angels have witnessed. Peter said that term, when it says the angels long to look into, what does that mean? That, that's, a, that's a term. The Greek literally means to peer in, listen, to peer into from without. Okay? There's people out there outside this tent and they're looking into this tent. They're not in the tent, they're looking into it, okay? The angels are outside in one sense of the gospel story, and they're looking into it and going, whoa. The grace of the gospel is amazing to them. Now listen, what's going on? Peter is situating these struggling new Christians in an old story. He's drawing lines for them and connecting them and what they're currently experiencing into a bigger story. They don't even, they're not even aware of it. They're, they have this Greek gods and the Roman rulers and they're in just this plethora of religious opportunities. They have no one story that defines their life. And Peter crossing ethnic and religious and national boundaries is saying, our history, the Old Testament is now your history too. You're grafted into this people. You're shaped by this past. You're promised this future. You have this power now to live in this present. He's rooting them back in the past. He wants these Gentiles to know their Old Testament history. And I want our church to know our Old Testament history. We aren't studying something new. We're not starting something new. 
were characters written into the last few chapters of the greatest story ever told. And even though they're suffering, they are privileged to be born and born again for such a time as this. Peter is filling in the gaps in our Christian story, giving them a backstory, connecting it to Jesus and the revelation and experience of being born again through the Spirit that they've already experienced. He's also showing them the future, the inheritance that's to come. Now let me ask you, as I'm getting ready to close actually, if the prophets spent their whole lives and sacrifice so much comfort and worldly accomplishments, accomplishments to search for Jesus. And the angels of God long to look into the gospel of Jesus. They are blown away by the grace of God towards rebellious sinners. What do you think our response is going to be? Now listen, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. That's, I'm not try, I'm, that's why I'm staying away from the word should. What is your response going to be? I don't want to make us feel guilty. In fact, I want to inform us of a fact. If you are bored with the gospel, you either don't see it clearly, you don't understand it at all, or you've forgotten it. Many of you, I believe, have forgotten the story. We become infatuated with all kinds of different stories and we forget the gospel story. It has morphed. Now listen, you don't think this is you. I think it's you. I think it's me. The gospel morphs into your, in your mind and you have forgotten it. It's changed just a little bit and it becomes less attractive, less powerful, less beautiful, less life-shaping. It becomes something you add to your life and not something that consumes your life. And what you believe about the gospel will shape your life. Shapes what you believe about the past, what you believe about the future, how you live today. Peter says this. Got to go back, Peter. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been, look, here's the word, announced to you through those who preached the good news to you, look here, by the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that inspired the prophets, the same Spirit that causes you to be born again, is the same Spirit that is upon the preachers who are preaching the good news. Who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to see a couple things. Number one, the gospel, the good news, is an announcement. It's an announcement that creates captivated worshipers. It's an announcement that when it's announced, the angels go, whoa, let's hear it again. It's when it's announced, the angels, the, the prophets go, whoa, let me look for it. And when it's announced, believers fall down and worship with tears in their eyes and joys in their heart, and they're willing to be sacrificed. They're willing to go to their death on behalf of it. It's such good news. Now, most of us don't have that response to the gospel because we don't have the right gospel. We don't have the right story. Now, let me, ex I'm going to tell a story. Let me explain. A king 
It's hard to put ourselves in this position. I might as well go back to the Lord of Rings. Battle of Helm's Deep. There's an army attacking. Everybody's hunkered down in this castle. The good thing about a castle is it's got big walls, right? But the bad thing about a castle is you go hungry after a while. You starve. And so you can't just hunker down. Somebody's got to go out and fight the battle, right? Somebody's got to go out and push back the enemy. So I want you to think about this. Here's two stories. Now, here's one story with two options. We're in this castle. There's an enemy attacking us. We send out. We're afraid, right? We're fearing for our lives. We're fearing for our children. We're fearing for our future. We, and our king says, I'm going to fight for you. I'm bringing the men of battle. We're going out and we're going to fight. Now listen, here's the options. When I get out there and I encounter the enemy, I've got two options. I'm going to send back these men to announce to you that we're winning or that we've won, right? Or I'm going to send back, I'm going to send these advisors to you and they're going to tell you what to do. So if we get out there and the battle's not going well, I'm going to send advisors back to you in the castle to tell you what to do. Hunker down, run away, prepare this, right? Now I want you to think about that. How well the battle's going out there determines the emotional response of the people in the castle. If we, when the king goes out to battle and we're sitting there, right? Twiddling our thumbs, waiting to hear back from the king, and we look out and we see advisors writing. What happens? We get more afraid. We get deeply anxious. He's going to come back and he's going to give us advice on how to survive this battle. We might not survive this battle. And so when you see advisors coming to you, you, you steal yourself. You, you, you're, you're, you know, weakness like you do, leaves your body. Like all strength just like leaves your body. You, you have a emotional response that is not positive, right? Right? You might just get, some of us, we might, okay, suck it up. Let's go. We got to do this. He's going to give us the advice. We got to make it happen. We got to organize. We got to put things together. And so you get, you get stronger and you get more intense. But now listen, how do you feel if you see the heralds who are bringing good news to you. The ones that come back and say this, the king has conquered. He's obliterated his enemies. He annihilated them. He wiped the field with them. He's coming back. How do you respond to that message? That is a message of good news that's being announced to you. The king has won and the people in the palace, the people in the castle Go crazy. They worship. Now here's my, here's what I believe. I believe many of us think the gospel is a message of good advice. Here's what you need to do to be saved. Here's what you need to do. And so we live anxious lives, fearful lives, and we lack the joy that we should have. But the angels and the prophets they realize it's not good advice. It's good news. Everything needed for your salvation has been accomplished 
by Jesus. He is working all things out for our good right now. If you believe the gospel, you should be the most rooted, the most restful, the most worshipful person on the planet. The angels show it. The prophets prophets show it. Why? I know it's hard for us to put ourselves in that emotional situation of being there and being anxious. What's going to happen in the battle? Am I going to get advice or am I going to get news? The king is conquered and the gospel is good news. Not good advice. Not good advice. Good news creates infatuated worshipers of Jesus. Good advice creates anxiousness, fear, and is just another story with me and my works at the center. The good thing about the story of God, listen, I know many of us in here, we're in a season of life where we're trying to create our story. We're trying to write our story. We're trying to figure out what part we have to play. It's so exhausting to have to do that. But the one good, another good thing about the story of God is we realize it's his story and not our, our story. And he's going to get us exactly where he wants us. He's going to do in us what it, exactly what he wants to do in us. And so I want to ask you, this morning, as you think about that, are you responding to Jesus like he's given you some good advice? Or are you responding to Jesus like you just heard the best news in the history of the universe? Father, your story is so good. The history it brings us into, the future it promises us, and the power it gives us to live differently in the present. And yet I confess that the narratives of our world are pressing in. Our political parties want our minds to be shaped through their ideology, through their worldviews, through their stories, through their narratives, and we're pulled. Our race, our ethnicity, wants us to be shaped primarily through the stories it tells. Our socioeconomic class whispers to us a different story than we find in our gospel. And it's so, we are being shaped by it unless we're actively resisting, repenting, and going back to your story. Jesus, you are our great hope. You are our great king. You have conquered everything that separates us from God. Sin, death, hell, the powers of this world, you have conquered them. You have defeated them. Everything that, everything that keeps us separated you have torn down through your body being torn asunder on the cross. 
we have been grafted into a new kingdom, a new story. And I pray, God, that you would help us see the beauty of it and you would cause it to shape our lives. We would live out our time on this earth in a way that others can see we live by a different set of rules. We live by a different cultural narrative. We are being shaped by something different. We can suffer. We can be marginalized. We can be mocked. We can lose power. We can lose prestige. We can give up our money. We can lay down the idol of family and put your kingdom and your church and your body where, where Jesus said it should be first. We do this because we're shaped by your story. Father, I pray that you'd give us the gift of sight to be able to see our part to play in that this morning and that would motivate us to live differently. <clears throat> and as we come to the Lord's table, the Messiah, the prophets who saw his suffering and they saw his glory, but his glory came through suffering and so does ours. We come to your body that was broken for us this morning. We take it into ourselves and we ask you to purge us of other stories. Purge us of any superiority we find in our own story. Purge us of any favoritism we find in our own story. Purge us of any fear and fill us with the body and the blood of your Son that gives us strength and encourages us. And fill us with the hope of the gospel that Jesus is at work on the throne right now making all things new. And we get to be a part of this redemptive work in this season before he comes back. We get to be a part. In a sense, we're like the prophets. We're looking in at Jesus and we're telling others about him. Father, as we come to your table this morning, I pray that our hearts would be humble, repentant, that through your spirit, you'd give us the eyes to see our the narratives that shape us in unbiblical, ungospel-centered ways, and we could repent of those. You'd help us believe the gospel and be infatuated with it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.